Have you thought this through? No way will that work. Are you sure? Is there any money in that? You'll never make any money doing that. How are you going to pay the mortgage? Just get a job. Entrepreneur Show. We're broadcasting here on WLCB 101.5 FM based in the greater Chicago, Milwaukee area. If you're an entrepreneur, this show is for you, so stay tuned. I'm Doris Nagel, your host for the next hour. I love helping entrepreneurs. I've advised them for the past 30 years, and I've been a serial entrepreneur myself. Every week, I bring on guests who are willing to share their stories and their advice. And our guest this week is Brett Jacobson. He's the founder and CEO of a company called Giddy, but that's just his current iteration. He's here, though, to talk about a very important entrepreneurial skill, the art of pivoting. Brett's uniquely qualified to talk about this. He started his first company at the tender age of 13. He had a pool chemical supply company that he built and sold for $100,000 at age 14. And since then, he's become a serial entrepreneur who's worked in all sorts of businesses, from fine art to tech to film and television, beverages, gaming, healthcare staffing, and now medical devices. He began his career in investment banking, and he then transitioned into the distressed asset sector, where he worked to turn around broken companies. His current company, as I alluded to, is one that he founded called Giddy. Giddy's main product is called Eddy, which is an FDA-registered class two wearable medical device designed to treat erectile dysfunction and improve sexual performance. Eddy is available over-the-counter direct to consumers, but we'll hear more about that from Brett. And so with that introduction, Brett, Thanks so much for being on the show today. Welcome to the Savvy Entrepreneur Show. Thank you, Doris. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thank you for being here. You know, Brett, you seem to be absolutely hardwired to be an entrepreneur in the way I think very few of us are, really. Talk a little bit about your background and how you got started as an entrepreneur. Well, I think entrepreneurship really starts in terms of it's like how you're raised you know, your mindset when it comes to business, when it comes to money, even if it comes to something as simple as as tracking an allowance, those are things that make an enormous impact on people's future lives. The number of friends of mine that I knew in high school who couldn't balance a checkbook, didn't understand it's like how banking worked. These were a lot of the skills that quite frankly, I learned when I was very young because I was taught that I needed to uh, track these things. I needed to understand things like interest, and loans and what rates were paid on things and the value of your time versus the value of money. These were all things that were, were really kind of instilled in me at a very young age. By the time I was uh, 13 years old, I was already doing the, uh, the accounting for my mother who owned art galleries all over, uh, all over the world. 
Um, she had publishing companies abroad. And really the focus of, of her wanting me to do the accounting wasn't cheap labor. It was that she wanted me to learn and understand how it was that you would balance the books for a business, how you would account for accounts receivable versus expenses. So a lot of that kind of came at a, a young age and some of that was nurtured and some of that was a little bit more forced. You know, my first business was a pool chemical supply company, as you you mentioned. That was uh, that was not by design. That was a little bit more forced. I had a uh, a father who was uh, who was rather uh, controlling and thought that now that I've had a bar mitzvah, it's time for me to start paying rent. So at 13 years old, here I was counting my bar mitzvah money, thinking, "Wow, it's like I'm set for life. I've never seen so much cash. It's like all at once. I think it was like twelve thousand dollars or something." He literally he took the money from me and he's like, this is how much your bar mitzvah cost. Let's subtract the amount that you got in presents. Now you owe me the difference in what your bar mitzvah costs plus interest. And on top of that, you're going to pay $50 a week in rent. The first week, one of the uh, businesses my father, uh, my father owned was a pool business. They were manufacturers of uh, a number of different lines of in-ground and above-ground pools. And... Uh, I took the pool chemicals that were in the garage because he used to get them for free from the pool chemical companies. And I took them next door to my neighbor. And I was like, uh, Mr. Cooper, do you want to buy a whole wagon full of pool chemicals? And he looked at the wagon and he said, how much? And I'm like, 50 bucks. And he's <laughs> like, yeah, go load them up in the back. And I'm like, this is easy, paying $50 a week in rent. And uh, I went back the next week. I'm like, hey, Mr. Cooper, want another wagon full of pool chemicals? And he looked at me and said, do you have any idea how many pool chemicals you sold me? He said, I've got about enough pool chemicals to last me for 10 years. And I said, oh. <laughs> and I looked at him and I was like, well, I wonder how much these things cost. So I rode my bike down to the, uh, the store and found out that I had sold about $1,000 worth of pool chemicals for $50. Which, Ouch. Ooh, there's a there's a hard business lesson right yeah, there, right? You know, and that's a great example of, you know, know know your market, know the pricing and and know what value you're giving people because it was a seemingly really simple sale. But it was a simple sale because I was massively undercutting the rest of the market mm. and it wasn't yeah. something that was sustainable either. I was I right. given up on somebody that I probably could have sold $50 worth of pool chemicals to for probably months. And instead, I lost right. all that business because I had to get that sale that day because I wanted right. to to, uh, to pay the rent. I looked at it at that point and I said, well, I think I got to adjust the pricing. And I started selling pool chemicals at 50% off what they were charging at the store. And I would go in and with the sheet listed, I would print out and I would say to anybody, I went to their knock on their door, the neighbors, and I would say, this is the price that you would pay at retail. And this is the price that you're going to pay for me. And I'm delivering it to you. I was establishing what value there was to them. And then I started expanding. I realized, why can't I have the kids at school do the exact same thing that I'm doing? We lived, it's like about a half a mile from the school. So I used to wheel, the, I mean, you'd go to jail for this today, but I used to wheel to, uh, to the middle school a wagon full of bromine, chlorine, and all kinds of other chemicals and hand them out to people to go and then they take them on the bus and bring them, uh, bring them home. I mean, if a kid brought in it's like those type of chemicals into a school today, you know, wow. that it would be a very different situation. But back then, that's what well, I was doing. And I guess you were taking a cut of each of your school chums sales yep. too, right? Yep, so exactly. You, so you were creating Brett Jacobson's Amway of pool chemicals, basically. 
Exactly. So they would go and they would sell them and I would, they would get half the profit. I would get half the profit. And to them, they're like, this is great. All it brings me these, I go drop them off at the neighbor. And I also, I didn't care how many they dropped off. I'm like, if you want to go and drop off to two neighbors, you want to drop off to 20, you know, I don't care. There's no overhead involved. It's just whatever you want to bring. So it got so big that I had to start calling up the pool chemical companies myself. And I would say, if you don't give me these free pool chemicals, because I keep in mind, my entire business was based on the fact that I got the chemicals for free. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So I would contact them and I would say, if you're not interested in giving me free samples, then I'm not going to keep giving out the samples to our customers. And of course, they were like, no, 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 don't do that. We'll keep giving you the uh, the uh, chemicals. But they couldn't understand. They were like, your business must be exploding. Like, how is it that you need more and more pool chemicals as quote unquote samples for your, your pool customers every single month? This must be one of the fastest growing pool companies in the United States. And it got so big that actually I was paying guys from my father's uh, company to bring me the pool chemicals because I couldn't have them delivered to the house anymore. Now we were getting, you know, vans full, truck full of, of pool chemicals and they started asking questions. They So they finally came to me and they said, listen, we've got these pool chemicals we're dropping off. We're interested in buying your business. And I wasn't interested in selling because quite frankly, I was making far more money by just continuing to operate the business. I mean, it was all profit. So to me, right. I was like $100,000 didn't seem like that great a price, but I was nervous. I was 14 at this stage. I'm like, they're going to realize that I'm just right. my neighbors at some point and right. they could do the exact same thing. Right. So I, I ended up saying, okay, you know what? I think it's been a good run. My friends have all made money. I've made money and, you know, let's just call it a day and let's, uh, let's just sell it. And I'll never forget the expression on their faces of these grown men who are in their 40s and 50s. And the six of them looking at me when I handed them a list and they're like, this is a list of your neighborhood. And I'm like, where did you think I was selling, was selling this stuff? I'm 13. Where did you think I was selling the, these things? And they were like, why did you go over here and then over here? And I'm like, because I bring this stuff to school and whichever of my friends want to sell it, like it's where they go home. Funny. You had a taste of success, and after that, it seems like there really wasn't a whole lot stopping you. In terms of pivoting, you know, you, you started in, in pool chemicals, but you've pivoted to all sorts of different businesses throughout your career so far, and I'm sure you're not done, both picking existing businesses that were in trouble through your turnaround work and then creating new businesses the ways you've pivoted are kind of, for me, mind-blowing, but maybe for our listeners, a good place to start is just talking about some of the basic, really basic 30,000-foot level ways that a business can pivot. So in my experience, something that I realized when I was, I was much younger is I, having exposure to, I was running my own pool business, I was selling candy at school, you know, I was, I was doing all these little things and then I would see businesses my father was involved in, and I would see businesses, my mother's art galleries and that. And I would meet all these people through the gallery who were in different lines of work and did different things. And there were some very, it's like strong through lines that you realized and started to notice with all these people who are coming in and spending a lot of money on art um, was it's like lines of work that they were in. And you realize it's like very quickly that 
it didn't really matter what industry somebody was in that at its core you needed to be it's like an excellent manager you had to understand it's like logistics warehousing manufacturing it doesn't really matter what you're making but you if you understand the processes of how to build an infrastructure and understand the processes of how to it's like get something from a to b regardless of what that process is and that's your expertise it really doesn't matter what sector you're working in and that's really a, where a lot of my career has been spent is that it's seemingly a hodgepodge of like why would you go here why would you do this and my feeling was if you have an expertise in operations in logistics and warehousing and manufacturing as opposed to an expertise in a specific skill set in a in a certain industry for example let's say that you're an expert at manufacturing optical lenses well that's a very narrow job there's not very many things you can do with that skill set it's it's an important skill set for somebody who's in that industry but outside that industry it doesn't have a lot of value but if you're an expert in sales, if you're an expert in management, if you're an expert in logistics and warehousing, it doesn't matter what industry you're in. It doesn't matter whether or not you're selling pool chemicals or candy or fine art. There are differences in terms of how you speak to the audience. And that's where it's like there's a big pivot involved is I meet so many companies. And as you said, I spent a lot of my career in the distressed asset sector. And one of the, the most common things you find is that people get married to an idea or married to a concept and they will ride that all the way to the bottom. They will put themselves yeah. out of business by saying like, nope, this is the way we do things. And you'll ask them innocently why, and they get very defensive. And the reason they get very defensive is they don't wanna be seen or perceived as having made a mistake or being wrong. You know, one of the things I point out to people all the time is the number of mistakes I've made in business. I make mistakes every day. The difference is I realize what's a mistake and I cut my losses and I say, okay, we're not doing this. It's similar to poker. You know, a lot of people who are inexperienced with poker, they never want to fold a bad hand. They'll keep playing it knowing that they have no chance of losing, or no chance of winning, that they're going to lose. And they'll keep throwing in more money and calling every bet and calling every bet and calling every bet. And then they'll do something desperate at the very end. When there's no chance left, they'll try to raise and they'll try to scare the other person off. So they'll make some big bet on something that has no chance of winning and then they'll lose everything. And it happens yeah. time and time again. And almost every distressed asset company I would sit with, somebody would tell me that they did everything right. And I would always say the same thing. I'm like, if you did everything right, why am I sitting here? I'm sitting here because <laughs> you didn't do everything right. So stop trying to convince yeah. me that everything you're doing is right and tell me where the problems are so we can fix this together. You know, there's a path out of here, but the path out of here is going to involve one, you trusting me. And two, you taking a very honest look at what it is that you're doing and what it is that you've done and saying, is there something that we can do to actually rectify this and fix this? How are we going to pivot? How are we going to change? Are we speaking to our customers in the right way? Is there something wrong with the website? Is it your logistics? Is it your manufacturing? There's always problems in a, uh, in a business. There are always things that you can change and you can do differently. I was talking to uh, to one of my investors and he had been asked to speak to a potential investor. I said, how did the call go? And he said, well, he said, I, you know what? I'm going to be honest. I'm going to tell you something that I haven't told you before. And I said, okay. 
he's he's a little bit uh let's say conservative with compliments to 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 put it mildly and he said you know we have a lot of companies we've invested in and we have a lot of people a lot of executives who work at those companies you're not the most successful business that we've invested in. You're not the most profitable business that we've invested in. You're not, and he went down the list of all the things that were not. And then he said, but you are willing to pivot more than any other CEO that we've ever had, any company that we've ever invested in. He's like, so many times we sit there and argue with the CEO and tell them, why aren't you seeing this? This isn't working. Please, you need to do something differently. This is going to end up costing the company customers, costing the company money, costing the company accounts, whatever it might be. And they don't want to listen. And he said, and in your case, we've never even had an internal discussion about how you should be doing things differently because you're always the first person to be like, this isn't working. Cut our losses. Go in this direction. And it's because there's a difference between believing in yourself and believing in a concept. Too many people wait and believe in what they think that what they've created is a representation of them. And they don't look at it in terms of I'm creating this thing. It's a living, breathing thing. A company is a living, breathing thing. How do I continue to nurture it? You don't say to your kids, oh, I told them to do something. It's not working. We're going to continue doing the exact same thing again and again. You try and talk to them in a different way. You try and explain to them or teach them in a different way. You don't let them just keep making the same mistakes. You don't continue having the same arguments. That's how people grow. And that's also how businesses grow. The needs of a business change wildly as a company grows up and matures. And the personnel that it needs changes. You know, if you look at the companies I've worked with, one of the things that you can point to is, you know, I can name. 20% of our staff that's worked with me on at least two other projects prior to this, not because they're experts in in medical devices before this company. In fact, none of them worked in medical devices before this company. The reason that they're valuable and they're so good is that they know their area. They know manufacturing. They know logistics. Whatever it happens to be, that's their area of expertise. And it's something that can be utilized in multiple fields. Now, Oftentimes, they don't even realize it themselves. I mean, the number of times I've had a conversation, if you look at our, our, our COO, who's an unbelievable manufacturing genius. I mean, this guy was building uh, pasteurization systems for milk 30 years ago, an absolute genius when it comes to manufacturing. And the first thing he does in every, every time I've called him up and said, hey, come join me, Chris, this is what we're going to do, is he tries to talk me out of it. He goes, no, 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 I don't know that sector. I don't know that. I don't know how to make that stuff. And every single time I give him a manufacturing project, he figures it out in no time. It's, oh, you're doing this wrong. You should do this like this. What if we calibrated this like this? What if we use this material instead of this? And what you actually find is that people who work in the same sector their entire lives tend to get uh, tunnel vision. They solve their problems in the exact same way all the time. When you bring in somebody else who has a different perspective and has worked in multiple different sectors, if we're talking about manufacturing in this instance, he knows that he's had to solve 30 different problems in 30 different industries, 30 different ways. And it gives him a wealth of knowledge to lean on and say, oh, well, what can I pull on from my background that would lend me to be able to fix this issue? Because maybe they're just thinking about it wrong because all they know is the medical device sector. And that's where I think that there's a a big uh, difference. And and there are a lot of people, as I say, I brought a lot of people with me, but most of those people are reluctant. 
you know, they don't want to change a uh, sector. They don't want to learn a new sector. They're nervous about how it's going to look or how they're going to perform or how they're going to do. And almost every conversation I have is the same. It's, okay, I trust you and I'm willing to go on this ride in this new space and I think it's going to be exciting and, and I believe in it, but don't blame me if I don't know it all immediately or if I do something wrong. And what I actually find is that those people do even better. And the reason they do even better is because they've got a hunger and a passion and a desire to learn and they don't want to let me down. So what they end up doing is taking the expertise they already have and learning the things that they need to know about that new sector. And they put in far more work. I mean, the number of people that I've spoken with in any particular sector, you can pick any sector from my background, and if you put the people who worked with me up against the top people in the industry, our people would be just as good. It's like sad, as I said, I'm going to learn everything. And if you look at the people who are, you know, the top, I'd say 20% and above, the top 20% of people are largely, largely, with the exception of that final 5%, 10% at most, are largely, it's like static in their lives. They're not reading new research. They're like, I already know this stuff. Yeah. I don't need to know the latest. I can interrupt you, I guess. It sounds like you like to surround yourself with a group of people who are smart and motivated and curious, but also willing to work outside their comfort zone. A hundred percent. And people who want to execute. There's a lot of people who want to sit there and talk about things. There's a far shorter list of people who actually want to go out there and execute, who actually are willing to put in the effort to try something, and if it doesn't work, try something else. Because again, what's your motivation in most jobs, in most, especially large companies? You're not going to make a very big impact on the bottom line. So you want to try and do your job, you know, five, 10% better than the last person or that somebody else was doing it. Because you don't want to rock the boat too much because you don't want to put anything on the line. And that's how well, it- most companies don't reward you, let's be honest. You know, our topic isn't really about big corporate America culture, but having lived and breathed it for way too long, I will say that for the most part, they may say they want new ideas, but really being an agent of change is not a comfortable place. And most of those people end up leaving sooner or later because it's just it's, it's just too hard. It's too uncomfortable and there's not, a, not an adequate reward system in place for it. Completely right. They, they're very quick to very quick to blame people for things that go wrong and not quick to uh, to praise anybody. It's usually the supervisor who gets the credit, and it's like you're the one who took all the uh, all the risk. And with entrepreneurship, you have it. It's like the opposite way, where you need to take those risks. And a lot of people, because of the way that largely the way that it's like people have been brought up. They think, no, 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 I've got to play it a little bit more conservative. It's it's a scary thing to abandon an idea that you put a lot of work into, a lot of money into, a lot of resources into and say, this isn't working. We need to try something else. That's right. scary, especially right. if you don't know what the new direction is. I mean, I can't tell you how many times <laughs> I've sat there and been like, well, this isn't working. And then somebody else in the office goes, well, what do you want to do? And I go, I don't know. Hold on. And they go, you don't know. You want to abandon this massive initiative, but you don't know what it is that you want to do. How are we supposed to do that? Jumping into the beyond is part of the deal. Hey, so Brett, I warned you, we need to unfortunately take a quick break for station identification. 
and a word from a few of our sponsors. But folks, stay tuned. We'll be right back talking with Brett Jacobson, the founder and CEO of Giddy and a serial entrepreneur talking about the art of the pivot. This is Doris Nagel, and you're listening to the Savvy Entrepreneur Show. This week is Brett Jacobson, the founder and CEO of a company called Giddy, which I hope we'll have a chance to talk a little bit more about on the show. But at the moment, we're talking about the art of the pivot, and Brett is a consummate pivoter. Brett, I really would love for listeners to hear a little bit more about the process you follow. I mean, you make it sound really easy. Oh, you know, I just get this great group of people and, you know, I kind of look at it and, you know, stick my finger up and, yeah, it seems like a good opportunity. I have a feeling, in fact, I'm pretty sure it's not that simple. Talk a little bit about your own process that you look at. When you see a distressed business and you're asked to come in and turn it around, what do you look at? Or even if you're starting a new business and something's not working, how soon do you pull the plug in and do something different? And how do you decide what that different might be? So I think one of the important things that people miss out on is they look at, at running a company in terms of nine to five. It's what did I do during the day? And for me, the majority of my decisions have nothing to do with what I'm doing during the day. During the day, it's like I'm putting out fires. I'm dealing with today's problems during the day. The rest of the time, what I'm doing after hours is laying all the groundwork for what goes into those work days. And what I mean by that is, is research, research, research. You know, it's amazing to me how many times I meet with an entrepreneur or CEO, and you ask them questions about their sector, about their industry, and they don't know the answers. And you're looking at them and you're going, how do you not know the actual size of your audience? How do you not know who your audience is? How do you not know? We had spoken uh, offline about, you know, these entrepreneurs that hold on forever and then they they get saved at the end it's they're down to their last cup of ramen noodles and you know <laughs> all they needed was that little bit of time and then things worked in those instances the reason that it worked was because they actually understood their model and they understood their audience what you find most of the time is that the reason things aren't working yet are not because it just so happens it hasn't clicked yet it just so happens that you don't understand your market enough that you haven't really looked at the size of it. I can tell you at least twice a week, I get a call from one of my friends who goes, I got a great business. And they start telling me about the business. And by the end of the call, they're like, ah, oh, damn it. And I'm like, you never asked yourself any of those questions, did you? And what they hadn't really explored was, why is somebody else not doing this already? If they are doing this, where is the loophole? Where's the vulnerability that you're gonna be able to exploit in order to capture this? You know, it's very easy to look at numbers alone without a context and think that something's easy to do. I, I give you a perfect example of this is the beverage industry. I used to be in the beverage industry. We had a, a really successful energy drink that we developed. It started as a takeover project, distressed asset company, and we pivoted in a different direction. And it was an energy drink geared towards women. And what I used to hear from people all the time was, I'm starting this beverage. If we just capture 1% of the market, it's worth you know $5 billion. And you would point out to them, well, the largest market holder is Coke, 
that has you know 40 percent of the market the second largest is pepsi which has 27 percent of the market and when you went down the list of the top 10 companies they controlled 99.9 percent of the marketplace and you were talking about it's companies that were worth tens of billions of dollars there was no room left by the time you were you were done in the beverage industry the idea that you were ever going to capture one percent market share was ridiculous you know yes could you theoretically get lucky and be the next red bull yeah but I, there's 1100 energy drinks that were founded at the same time as red bull and there's only five that survived those aren't very good odds and there's billions of dollars that was wasted along the way we looked at it differently and we said okay well, you've got a crowded field, but none of them are making a product geared towards women. You know, the cost of going into convenience stores and gas stations is very high in order to sell a single unit, meaning a single serving can. But, you know, women do most of the grocery shopping. They buy for a household. There's 72% of the household buying decisions and they buy multi-packs. So let's go and let's explore what's the market like at grocery mass and drug. And when you went to those locations, oh, look at that. The demo's completely different. The cost of getting into a grocery store, a drug store is a fraction of what it costs to get into a convenience store or a gas station. And look at that. I can get somebody who's going to buy four cans instead of one because they're going to buy a four pack. So there was a vulnerability there in the market that existed because nobody was speaking to that audience and nobody had really looked at the data. And that's what you need to look at when you look at, at a market. If you look at at Giddy, for example, we looked at a market that up until recently, nobody had done anything with. You had constriction devices that go back thousands of years. You had the penis pump that was invented in 1874. Since then, you've had ED drugs, which came about by accident. They weren't created by design. And ED drugs only account for 3% of ED sufferers taking those medications on a regular basis. 70 to 80% of men with ED utilize nothing as a uh, treatment option on a regular basis. So all of a sudden you're like, well, wait a second. What seems like a saturated market if you look at it, and I get that constantly when I speak to an investor, is they'll say, oh, well, the whole market is, is ED medication. So there's nothing left. And you're like, well, actually, no. They only account for 3% of men with ED, 70 to 80% use nothing. And here's a product that's revolutionary. This is how it works and this is how it's different. And this is what the margins are. Now, all of a sudden, it's a different story. Now, all of a yeah. sudden, there's room in that business. When you take a, a look at it at first glance, you'd have the same response I had. I originally, yeah. when, I, when I saw this product, I saw the, the original patent, I said, there's no room for a product like this. You can't make any money off of it. But when you actually looked at the potential size, the potential margins, medical devices tend to fall into two categories. They tend to be either ubiquitous, where it's like they're everywhere, like masks and gloves with very low margins, or they tend to be vertical, where you've got enormous margins for stents and artificial hips. Right. But right. a very limited market. You know, how many artificial hips does a, a surgeon installer buy in a month? It's not that many. This right. was an opportunity to sell something that was ubiquitous, but also had very large margins. And it had a large market that hadn't been looked into or attacked. And when you ask the question why, what you got from everybody was stigma. Well, that's an easy thing to look at and say, well, hold on a second. People's opinions over time change. Stigmatized products change, whether it's pornography or talking about sex. I mean, you look at I Love Lucy, you couldn't even show a married couple that shared a bedroom together. You had to show them in separate right. beds. 
You know, we've right. come a long way in terms of what's acceptable to talk about. And that's where you, you spot an opportunity in the market and you say, what's going on culturally? What's going on in terms of the fundamentals of the business? Ah, wait a second here. We actually have a perfect timing for this recipe to work. And timing is something that you cannot underestimate. There are lots of businesses. If you look at the beverage industry and the beverage concept that we had, we were about 18 months to three years too early. If we had been three years later, we would have turned that into a billion-dollar brand, no question. But we were a little bit too early when people had just started talking about things that were healthier and started reading labels and what they were they were putting in their bodies, and you were starting to get more of an, a focus and attention on vitamins and ginseng and all these types of things. We were just a little bit too early, and because of that, it cost us tremendously. Now we managed to make a successful company out of it, and we had a successful exit, but it was a fraction of what we would have gotten if our timing had been more perfect. And it all comes from research. I agree with you that a lot of entrepreneurs think they have a great idea. They'll build it and they will come idea. And some of it is really understanding the market and researching it and looking for vulnerabilities, as you've alluded to, I think. But just because there's a potential doesn't mean people want your product or that they want your product now. How do you go about validating your ideas in the real world? You know, people fall in love with their ideas. They go, I've got this idea for something and it's great. And it doesn't matter what I say that's negative. They have built up an impenetrable layer of garbage around it that it does not matter what I say to them. And I've sat with people like that lots of times. They start telling me about their idea and I go, well, what about this? Oh, no, 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 that, well, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, okay, it doesn't matter. It's one thing when somebody has a, well, we've addressed this with X, Y, Z. It's another thing when people go, oh, that's, that's irrelevant, that doesn't matter. Oh, people don't think that way. Oh, okay, they don't think that way. Is there any way that anything you can show me that documents that people don't think that way? I don't know why you're making the assumption that people think one way or another. And what you really have to do is be the most critical. We, I have a weekly meeting where everybody comes into the office and they talk about anything they wanna talk about. Any subject, any department, I don't care. You bring an idea forward, tell us what's going on. So I was doing this at a music education company. I was asked to come on board and help. And one of the interns said, can I sit on on the Monday morning meeting? And I said, sure. It comes into the meeting and he presents this idea and the idea was terrible and it got ripped apart in the room. At the end of the day, he came into my office and he goes, you know, I just want to thank you. It's been a really great learning opportunity. And I was like, um, oh, sure. And, uh, and he's like, you know, I just hope that, you know, I'll still get my full school credit. And I said, what are you talking about? And he goes, well, I'm, I'm fired, right? And I said, fired? Why would you think you're fired? He goes, that idea was terrible. And everybody told me, like, I didn't know what I was talking about and that everything was wrong. And I, and I started laughing. He said, first off, we don't pay you, so there's no reason to fire you. Secondly, what are you talking? That's the purpose of those meetings. I get ripped apart in those meetings just as much as anybody else gets ripped apart. That's the purpose of it. Beat it up in the room so that it is when you go forward and you actually present it or put money into it or put time and effort into it, that you actually have something that you know is bulletproof, that you've right. actually got a foundation of that. Too many people go to the people, they go in there, it's like, oh, well, I'm going to ask my mom what she thinks. Mom's going to say it's right. a great idea. You know, I'm going to go right. ask my uncle. Why are you asking your uncle? Well, he bought a car before, so I'm going to ask him what he thinks of me going into the car sector. Well, does he know anything about automotive engineering? No. It's like, you know, the people that they go to aren't experts in the space. 
I always go to the people who are experts in the space and I say, why is this done like this and why doesn't this work? And let them tell me all the reasons that are wrong with it so that I can take a hard look at it. And you know what? Most of the things that you look at, most of the ideas that I come up with, that you come up with, that anybody comes up with aren't good. They just aren't. You know, on their surface, lots of things sound and look like a good business. And then when you actually delve into the numbers, you're like, oh, look at that. That model just doesn't work. That's why nobody's done it before. It doesn't make any sense. It's not profitable. It can't be profitable. Unfortunately, a lot of this has changed with these high growth companies that spend endless amounts of venture capital money to continue to acquire customers in hopes that they are going to come out and exit the other side with a bigger company buying them that can absorb their losses. But if they don't, they ultimately go to zero. I don't like businesses and I don't trust businesses that can't stand on their own two feet. And if you're going to develop something or you're going to look to be an entrepreneur and your mindset is, oh, well, we'll just continue to raise more and more capital as we get bigger and then eventually somebody will buy us and it cannot be a profitable business on its own, then you should not be even entertaining that business. Yes, you can give me a dozen examples of Facebook that kept on losing money forever until eventually they were profitable or an Amazon. But for the most part, what happens to those businesses is they run out of money. They run out of money and go out of business before that, whatever they were hoping for, that certain maturation, that certain pivot point that they think they're going to hit ever occurs, they fall short and it's done. And it's unfortunate because a lot of these businesses are things that actually could have been fixed if people weren't in love with their idea. But instead, they would rather it's like have everybody tell them that they're right and cheer them on. It sucks being told that you're an idiot. It sucks being told that your idea is no good. Nobody likes hearing that. If you look at the the medical device company, Giddy, for four years, I listened to people tell me I was an idiot for going into the medical device space. So talk a little bit about that thought process. So when I looked at the space, I, I tend to look at things in terms of downside risk. So I'll give you an example is nobody wanted to fund the company initially. This was one of those businesses where I bought up the initial IP. I thought that it was a brilliant business. I'm like, there's enormous potential here. You've got a huge market. If we capture even a small part of this this market that's currently nobody is satisfying, we could do unbelievably well. It's a rather light lift in terms of R&D compared to other products that are in the medical space. Um, It's something that we can test. It's like we can get feedback on. It's not something that's surgical. It is a class two medical device, but it's not a pill. It's it's got a rather low liability risk. There were a lot of factors there that made a lot of sense from a risk perspective. And to me, I looked at it and I said, you know what? I'm going to spend a tremendous amount of money on IP and patents. Now, normally I'm a, a huge advocate of not doing that. And the reason being is that People come up with a concept, they think it's brilliant, it turns out not to be so brilliant, and you burned up all your capital, which maybe was enough to make the company work, but you burned it all up because you bought a bunch of unnecessary IP to protect something that nobody was really interested in in the first place. But in this particular case, I knew that the product itself worked. And that was at the core of this whole thing. I'm like, you have a, a device for the treatment of ED that works. And it's more effective than any of the other things that I had seen on the market in terms of my own perspective and my own testing that I had done. I'm like, this is more effective than the other solutions. It's less expensive. It doesn't have any surgical uh, need. It's like, there's no operation. There's no pill to take. There's no interactions with medications. 
it's okay. it checked a lot. Of it's not implantable, which is, you know, adds layers and layers of risk. Absolutely. And so when I looked at it, I said, you know what? I'm going to spend a lot of money on IP. And the way the patents work, and I'm sure that some of your audience understands and others are a little bit uh, new to it, is once your product is revealed to the public or you start selling it, that's it. The door for you to get a patent is closed. You cannot right. file for patents. At that point, it's public domain. So I looked at it and I said, you know, I'm going to spend millions of dollars on getting these patents done. But I'm going to do so because at the end of the day, if the product works, there will be a buyer for it. Whether I make it through FDA or I don't make it through FDA, that will impact greatly how much I get for the company. But if right. I walk into Johnson & Johnson with a vetted product that works and I've got patents pending, even in countries like China, it's very difficult to get patents issued in, uh, in China. I don't have the power or the clout to get that done, but Johnson & Johnson does. So by going to them and saying, hey, I've got this product, it's vetted, it works, we can do all these things with it, the market potential is X, Y, Z, and I've got these pending patents, which you guys have the ability to push through and get approved. Then you're talking about whether or not they'd be able to recoup. And the answer is, yeah, no matter what, I was going to get more than a couple million dollars. So it made sense because I looked at the downside risk and I said, what's my worst case scenario here? My worst case scenario is I spend a lot of time. I spend a lot of resources. I break even. Maybe I make a, you know 20% of my money. It's not an all or nothing risk. But as, you, as we talked about earlier, time is a factor as well because I'm like, look, I'm 40 years old now. You know, I don't have the opportunity to make as many mistakes as I could make when I was 20 years old. So I have to be a little bit more cautious in the decisions that I make in terms of if this doesn't work out, what if? What are the consequences? How does it affect my life? How does it affect other uh, other aspects? And I knew that at every level that we went through, how much sense it made to risk how much because of what the potential downside was. So once we got through FDA and we were an FDA class two registered medical device, I knew that our floor was effectively 50 to $100 million. We've got a proven product. It's already FDA registered. We've got a base now. You know, once we got products and sold them and then resold them, I'm like, wait a second. Okay, we've hit another milestone again. We've got additional uh, value there. So I'm willing to risk a little bit more in terms of what I'm willing to put up in capital or what money I'm willing to borrow from somebody in order to make it to the next level. And a lot of people kind of just fly by the seat of their pants. They're just like risk, 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 risk. And it's like, look, that, you can't bet the house on every single hand. <laughs> you have to go in at the right time. And sometimes that can take a really long time. You know, I, yeah. I, I know I have friends who worked on businesses for 12 years right. in full time, making right. no money until they got it right. And when they right. got it right, it worked. But right. in all those instances, the reason they were successful is because they were analytical about themselves. They looked in the mirror and they said, what is wrong with this? Why doesn't it work? Why isn't it working already? How do I fix this? How do I make it better? Instead of saying, no, I don't understand why nobody buys into this. This is a brilliant idea. If you don't get it, it's because you're stupid, not because I don't know what I'm doing. And you wow. find happens more time than, than not is with entrepreneurs is they go, no, 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 this is my idea and that's it. And now, the funny part is, you know how many times I've walked into a distressed asset company and what the business was supposed to be is not what the business is that we were in when I left. You know, if yeah. you look at the beverage company, I was asked to invest in an energy drink for men that was at the time infringing on somebody else's trademark. 
And they were, and this guy was like, help me get my million dollars out of this business. And I'm going, well, they're infringing on somebody else's trademark. I don't know what you want me to do here. They got no inventory. The product is crappy. There's not really anything here. And the CEO is telling me how great it is. And I'm going, there, there's no business. The business consists yeah. of you have a concept that you want to be the next Red Bull. And none of the pieces are there to set this up. But he had one thing, one thing going for him, which is he had a distributor. And getting distribution in beverage is a very difficult thing That's to do. Big deal. Like, yeah. Wait a second. What if I went into this distributor and I could leverage them to get other distributors and I presented to them a phenomenal product line that actually did make sense? Because if this guy was willing to buy into the garbage that this guy was trying to sell, he's got to be sitting with pallets of this stuff. And if I'm willing to take it off his hands and give him something that he can take a shot with instead that has a higher likelihood of success, he might be willing to do that. And that's what we did is we came up with something that was better. We identified where the hole was in the market. We went in to speak to this distributor and we said, I'll take back all the stuff that you have that's not selling on condition that you try to sell this other stuff. And at first he was like, why would I take one load of garbage when your other load of garbage didn't sell? Like, Hold on a second. You know, you garbage. could absolutely lose $200,000. Or you could potentially lose $200,000. What would you rather have? You want a, a guaranteed $200,000 loss? Or do you want the potential of making your money back? And he was like, all right, well, I might as well take a shot at making my money back. Begrudgingly went along with it. And we used that as the foundation to pivot and change things at the business. But we started off with an energy drink that was trying to be another Red Bull that was selling at convenience stores and gas stations, wasn't selling very well, that was in the middle of litigation and transformed it into an energy drink for moms that was family oriented, that was geared towards women, that was a healthier alternative, and that was sold at grocery mass and drug. That's remarkable in a way, because if I'm thinking about sort of pivoting from a 30,000 foot perspective, you'll see people who write, well, what you really need to do is pivot to sell new products or services to your existing customers, or you need to find new customers for your existing products and services. But what you did with this company, it seems to me, is you did the third thing, which is really hard to do, which is you have a new product and new customers. But that's what you have to do most of the time. Most of the time, you can't take something that's broken and then just think it's going to change. If your audience doesn't understand the product that you're currently selling to them, why are they going to understand the next product that you sell to them? That's just an add-on in that direction. So, for example, that in that particular case, that CEO's philosophy was he's like, well, we should come out with more flavors. And I'm like, how does that, how does that get rid of your lawsuit? And he goes, oh, I guess it doesn't. And I said, and how does that help with the retailers who have your product that isn't selling now? Why would more flavors of the same broken brand in the same broken stores yield you a better result? I don't understand why that would work. Again, it's, it's that taking a step back and saying, okay, what you're doing isn't working. Why isn't it working? And what you find that oftentimes people do is they don't pivot the company in a new direction. What they actually do is they do something in the exact same direction that they were doing it before, just with some other, it's like fill in the blank widget. You know, it's okay, we're going to do the, make the same mistakes over here we made over there, just we're going to do it with a, an orange flavor instead of a, a grape flavor. So in other words, they tweak when they need to be truly pivoting. 
Yeah, if I they need, what they need to do is they need to take a step back and look at the fundamentals because what that, that's what they're missing. They're looking at the, you know, the shiny, it's like the stuff sitting on the shelf and they're trying to make a decision based off of the stuff sitting on the shelf, but they don't actually understand who their customer is. They don't understand who their distributor is. They don't understand who the retailers are and why the retailers are angry, why the distributors are angry and you changing the packaging doesn't fix those issues that you have with those different groups. You're just taking one problem and swapping in something else. They're still gonna be annoyed with you because you've got a lawsuit because you weren't straight with them from the beginning and you infringed on somebody else's trademark. Now, there's a big need for what you're talking about for micro correction. You know, I, I had a, an employee who, who actually said it very well. He said, you know, I get frustrated dealing with Brett because he's constantly changing his mind. And the response that my CTO said was, he said, why do you think Brett's constantly changing his mind? And he said, well, one day he'll say to do it this way, and then he'll say we should do it that way instead. And, you know, that, that's not the way it's like that you build a market, you build a business. And his response to him is, John said, Brett knows exactly where he wants the company to be in three months. He knows where he wants the company to be in six months. He knows where he wants the company to be in a year. And he understands the fundamentals of the business. What you're seeing are micro corrections that he's making to keep us on track so that we hit those milestones along the way because he understands how the business is constructed and what the foundation is. So what you're talking about is these massive changes. They're tweaks. They're tweaks to keep us on target. It's not changes to the fundamental business. We have never changed who our customer is. We've never changed our distribution uh, model. We've never changed our pricing model. We've never changed any of those other factors around the product. We've only made a small adjustments to how we speak to a specific audience. Oh, they like the word control more than they like the word uh, ownership. They like this graphic versus that graphic. Graphics that are more colorful tend to do better than these ones that are more muted tones. They're micro corrections, but they're not changes in terms of, oh, we're going after this audience. We're going after 65 plus. Now let's go after 45 plus. Those are mistakes. When you go and you have to pivot like that, then you need to rethink your entire foundation of what you're doing because the likelihood that you need to, to, to course correct to go and change your audience or change your distribution model or change these other things and there's not something underlying which is wrong is impossible. There is no way you need to make massive changes to your business and that the only thing that's wrong is, oh, the color's wrong on the font or I would change the name of the, uh, the product and then people will like it better. It's like, no, you have systemic issues with the business. Yeah. And you have to always be looking at those things. You know, it drives my fiance nuts. I've got spreadsheets on every aspect of the, uh, the company and they are adjusted every single day. And she's like, what is the difference if you adjust this thing by a 10th of a percent today? It's not going to affect anything. I'm like, it doesn't affect anything today. But the point, you know, the 10th of a percent over the next six months is going to add up to 6% and 6% is going to make a difference. So if um, I don't continue to look at the fundamentals and say, what am I doing right? What am I doing wrong? Where are the weak points here? What's not working? And how do we fix that systemically? You're always going to have a business that's constantly, it's built on sand. It's just constantly unstable. It's constantly got problems. It's constantly got fires to, uh, to put out and not the right kind of fires. Fires are fine. 
there's fires at the uh, company every day, but they're, they're fires that allow you to make tweaks and make changes and, and move the product, it's like, and move the company forward. They're not major category issues. They're not systemic problems with the, uh, the business. And if you do find there is one, you need to take that and pivot and change that immediately. You cannot wait or let it fester or say, oh, it's, it's going to be too hard to tackle. That's another one that you hear is people go, do you know how many, how much work it would be to change that? And you're like, okay, so you'd rather ride the ship all the way to the bottom of the ocean rather than do the work to keep it afloat. Is that what you're telling me? Yeah. But they they make that choice all the time because it's easier. You know, I, I I had a, a, a day off a few weeks ago and I was jokingly said to one of the people, I'm like, Hey, look at that. It's my first day off in 19 months. And he turned to my fiance and she, and he's like, she's not, he's not serious. Is he? And she's like, Oh no, he's serious. He literally hasn't had a day off in 19 months. You can't expect to build a business and, and think, Oh, well, somebody else will mind the store. It'll be fine. Cause there's somebody like me who's working 20 hours a day, seven days a week who's trying to figure out a solution. You cannot succeed if you don't know every aspect of what it is that you're doing. And you can't expect to do that having a part-time job. And if you want to be an entrepreneur, you can't do that 40 hours a week. 40 hours a week is a part-time job. And I respect people who work 40 hours a week. And I understand that they have families and they have responsibilities. But those are people who made a choice to make those things a priority. If you want to be an entrepreneur, that is the priority. The relationship takes a back seat. The kids take a back seat. Now, that's not a nice thing for people to hear. Nobody wants to hear that they're second in line. But that's what you need to do if you want to be successful, because otherwise you're going to meet, you're going to lose out to the other. It's like 50 people like me who are going, well, I'm not going to make those other things a priority. So what yeah. you're going to get done in three years, I'm going to get done in one. So, Brett, I have to interrupt you because the time has absolutely flown by. And before we let you go, some absolutely great, great pearls of wisdom that I hope people have been processing and maybe want to listen to the podcast version again to fully process and really think through how some of the pieces of advice you've been kind enough to share really play out in their their business or their potential business. But before we let you go, I would like to ask you one last question, which is, if people are interested in chatting with you about a business idea or about pivoting or perhaps they're interested in learning more about Giddy, what's the best way for them to contact? You can send me an email, brett, B-R-E-T-T, at getmegiddy.com. And if you're interested in uh, treatment options for ED, check out getmegiddy.com. And uh, we've got, you know, got some great uh, treatment options that are non-surgical. Um, they don't have any, uh, there's no medication, there's no prescription to, uh, to take um, for both uh, ED sufferers as well as their partners. So um, we've helped a, a lot of people and want to continue to help a lot of people. There's hundreds of thousands of men now that are utilizing our product um, successfully and uh, we, uh, we want to make it as many as possible. So if anybody has uh, ideas that they want to talk to me about, you know, I talk to entrepreneurs all the time. Um, drives my fiance nuts, but I'll be on the phone until 11 o'clock at night um, talking to people about, it's like their dog walking business. Um, it's something I, it's, I like doing. It's, you know, I like helping other entrepreneurs. I like um, helping people. It's like be successful in their own way. It's, it's, it's very rewarding to see somebody 
fix something or help somebody fix something that they've been unable to work with or fix on their own. That is fantastic. And again, thank you for your generosity and sharing advice and your time today. So, Brett, it was a, a real pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much, Dorothy. Appreciate That's our show for this week, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks again, especially to our guest today, Brett Jacobson, a serial entrepreneur and the current founder and CEO of a company called Giddy. You can find more helpful information and resources on my website, globalocityservices.com. There's a library there of free blogs, tools, podcasts, and other resources. And because this show is for you, my door is always open to any listeners. If you have comments, questions, suggestions, or just want to shoot the breeze, you can always email me at dnagel, N-A-G-E-L, at lakes, plural, lakesradio.org. And I promise I will respond. Now, be sure to join me next Saturday again at 11 Central at noon Eastern time. We'll have another great guest and topic. But until then, I'm Doris Nagel, wishing you happy entrepreneuring.